Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, like an Old Testament guilt offering to pay the guilt of your sin if you're in Christ or will believe in him. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of a four-part series titled The Birth Announcement of God's Son. We're examining the remarkable historical account of the birth of Jesus Christ as told in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. So far, we've looked at the announcement of the birth of God's Son, to whom this announcement was made, and the full implications of this incredible news. And today, Tom will begin to examine just who this announcement is all about, the promised Messiah, Christ the Lord. You'll discover the meaning of Jesus Christ's name and why it was necessary for him to come to earth to rescue his people. Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Luke chapter 2. You're aware, of course, that the first few verses of this chapter, verses 1 to 7, is one of Scripture's most familiar passages. It is the historical record of the actual birth of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Jesus' actual birth, I mean the process of his birth, his coming out of the womb of his mother, went unnoticed and virtually unannounced. You see, it was never God's plan for Jesus' birth to remain unnoticed. It may have happened in quiet solitude, but God intended for everyone to know what had happened. God planned the greatest birth announcement in history for the birth of his son. Last Sunday, we began to study that divine birth announcement that's recorded for us in Luke 2, beginning in verse 8, and runs down through verse 20. Let me read it for us. You follow along, and again, let me encourage you to read it with me as though you had never heard it before. Let the words sink into your heart and soul. Don't allow the the familiarity to breed contempt. In the same region... There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. In these verses, Luke records for us the amazing record of the birth announcement of God's Son. And he presents to us several details about that announcement. Last Sunday, we we began by looking at the unlikely audience, who God chose, or more grammatically correct, whom God chose. Notice in verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That night, just a couple of miles away from the town of Bethlehem, these shepherds were guarding their flock. They were the ones that God chose to tell about the birth of his son. And they were, frankly, a most unusual and unlikely choice for God to present this announcement to. Because as we learned last week, the shepherds in the first century, and and especially as you get into the post-Christian era, the post-apostolic era, this becomes even more apparent in the Jewish writings, that shepherds were despised and were looked down upon. And that was true for a number of reasons. It was true because of the nature of their work. Those who were shepherds tended to be a lower class of people. In the first century, they were just a notch above day laborers and therefore looked down upon by many. They were wandering nomads. Seldom did they have homes and roots that were set down. Instead, they wandered with their sheep to find the best pasture throughout the year in different places across Judea. Because of their lifestyle, they were often suspected of being thieves. As they traveled around, they often became the the brunt of accusations that They were stealing from the people whose land they wandered. In fact, they were considered to be so dishonest that the rabbi said they were not allowed to serve as judges and not even as witnesses in a court of law. And when it came to their religious practice, they were often under the rabbinic ban from attending synagogues or the temple because of the nature of their lifestyles. The Midrash, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says this, quote, No position in the world is so despised as that of the shepherd. And yet, in spite of all of that, it was the shepherds to whom God chose to announce the birth of his son and to announce it in dramatic fashion. Notice verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. We don't know what part of the night it was. It might have been early evening while they were all still awake. It might have been later when, when only one of them would have been awake guarding and the others would have been taking their turn sleeping, waiting for their watch yet to come. But regardless, suddenly there was an angel that stood before them, verifiably an angel, a divine messenger. And along with the appearance of that angel... Notice the glory of the Lord shone around them. There was also a visible display of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, this word glory often refers uh, to the Shekinah, as it's called in Hebrew, that blazing cloud of, of light that represented the visible presence of God. The Shekinah had last been seen 600 years earlier in the time of Ezekiel. But now on that cold winter night, 
the Shekinah appears again to the shepherds in a field outside of the town of Bethlehem. It surrounded the angel, that blazing cloud of light surrounded the angel, surrounded the shepherds. No wonder verse 9 says they were terribly frightened. They were a most unlikely audience. Now that brings us to verses 10 through 14 that we began to examine last time, and that is the grand announcement. The grand announcement, what God said. Here is recorded for us what God communicated through the angels that night. Verse 10, but the angels said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The angel said, listen, I come with good news, and that good news is going to produce true joy in the hearts of everyone who actually receives it. But the announcement of good news is for all the people, verse 10 says. God is announcing good news to the entire world. As we saw last week and later in chapter 2, Simeon reminds us that that this child will be a light to the peoples, all the peoples on this planet. So what is the good news that God is now announcing to the entire world and that will produce true joy for those who actually receive it? The good news is in verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I wish you had never heard those words before. I wish you were hearing them for the first time. I wish you were sort of listening over the shoulder of the shepherds to hear the angels say these words. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the heart of the gospel. Notice it sets forth for us the details about the birth of Jesus. The time, today. The location, in the city of David. That is, in David's hometown, the city of Bethlehem. That's important because the Old Testament had prophesied much about the coming Messiah. And One of the things that had been prophesied was by Micah in Micah 5.2 that Bethlehem would be where he would be born. Micah writes, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He existed before There was anything else. You see, the angel was announcing to the shepherds that night that Micah's prophecy had now been fulfilled. The good news is now embodied in time and space and in a person. You know, it's difficult for us who live so far removed, both in time and space from where these events unfolded, to really be gripped by the historical reality of them. Listen, understand this. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. Born in a real place, at a real point in time on the timeline of human history. He actually existed. You can go visit where he walked and where he taught and where he was born and where he died. You can debate 
the reality of his claims, but the fact of his existence and the fact of his claims, that's a matter of history. Now notice what the angel tells the shepherds about this person. He says in verse 11, there has been born. In other words, this is a real human newborn. Jesus' conception was a miraculous conception. He was conceived without a man in a virgin. His birth was miraculous only in one sense, and that is his mother was still a virgin when he was born. But the process of his birth was a normal birth, just like your birth and my birth. He was a real human infant. There has been born. The angel says, there has been born for you, for your benefit, for your advantage. He's been sent on your behalf. John Calvin who understood the sovereignty of God and salvation, in writing about this verse, says this, The pronoun to you is very emphatic, for it would have given no great delight to hear that the author of salvation was born unless each person believed that for himself he was born. Listen, there has been born for you. And he adds, There has been born for you a Savior, a Rescuer, a Deliverer. Here's the heart of his mission. You know, many in Israel were hoping for deliverance. They were hoping for a political Deliverer who would free them from Roman oppression. But that wasn't the kind of deliverance or rescue God had in mind. This newborn child has come to accomplish man's spiritual rescue. He came from God on a divine rescue mission. But what does Jesus save or rescue us from? You know, we talk a lot as Christians about salvation, being saved, the Savior. But the question is, from what? Most people don't feel like they need to be rescued from anything. Why would he come to be a rescuer. What is he rescuing us from? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that question biblically. Let me give you three very brief examples of what he came to rescue us from. First of all, he came to rescue us from slavery to Satan. You see, Jesus was very clear in his ministry in John 8. He said, every person on this planet, every person in this room is under the control of one father or another. Either God is your father and you are under his authority serving him, or Satan is your father, Jesus said, and you're under his authority serving him. People like to think, you know, who who aren't in Christ, "I, I enjoy freedom. Listen, you're not free. Jesus said everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. We are born into this world under the authority, the domination of Satan himself, and we live enslaved to him. And Jesus came to rescue us from that slavery. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 puts it this way, He rescued us from the domain. The Greek word is literally authority. He rescued us from the authority of darkness, a reference to Satan. 
came to set us free from our slavery to Satan, our birth father. But there's something else he came to rescue us from. He also came to rescue us from the wrath of God. You know, most people don't like to think about this. They don't like to think about God as being angry. They like to think about God as love. But the Scripture is very clear. God himself says in the Psalms, I am angry with the wicked every day. Never a day passes that God isn't angered by man's rebellion against him. He gives man good things upon good things, and man takes those and uses them and perverts them for his own ends without acknowledging God's rule in his life. And God says, that makes me righteously angry every day. And that anger is growing. Paul in Romans 4 talks about man accumulating God's wrath, storing up God's wrath for the day of judgment. And that wrath will eventually express itself at the judgment. God's anger against our sin Jesus came, are you, are you clear on this? Jesus came to rescue us from God. That's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, for those who are in Christ, we shall be rescued from the wrath of God through Jesus. Rescued from God's just wrath against our sins. There's one other facet of this rescue Jesus came to bring, not only slavery to Satan, wrath, the wrath of God, but several months before Jesus' birth, we read it this morning from Matthew chapter 1, the angel spoke to Joseph and added another facet of what this child would save us from. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, call his name Jesus. Of course, Jesus, Jesus is Yeshua. The Hebrew form is Yeshua. And it means, it's Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. God rescues. Call him God rescues. Why? Because he will rescue his people from their sins. From the guilt of sin. From the penalty of sin. You see, Jesus didn't come to rescue us from a lack of personal fulfillment. He didn't come to rescue us from a bad marriage or problems in our home. He didn't come to rescue us from difficult trials, although some of those may come as byproducts of the salvation that he brings. But they aren't the primary purpose Jesus came. You see, our real problem is sin. Each of us is guilty of having broken God's law. The law that's in the Scripture, the law that's written on our hearts, and when we do, our consciences accuse us. We know we're guilty. So we're guilty. And here's the problem. God, as he tells us in his word, is a God of unbending, unwavering justice. He is always just. He can do nothing that's unjust. What that means practically is that he cannot allow a single sin to go unpunished. Not one sin that you have ever committed will go unpunished. We deserve punishment. But here's the good news. It's that Jesus came into the world to rescue his people from their sins. 
to rescue us not from subjective feelings of guilt. We have those. Your conscience bothers you as mine does me. It convicts us. It says, I feel guilty. But Jesus didn't come to rescue us from the feelings of guilt. He came to rescue us from real, objective guilt before the bar of God's justice. Guilt that at the judgment would cause God to render a verdict of guilty and a sentence of eternal death. That's what he came to rescue us from. You can see why it's good news. You know, this spiritual rescue was first promised to us the very day Adam and Eve fell. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we call it the Proto-Evangelicum, the first announcement of the gospel. When God said to Adam and Eve, there's going to come one born of the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He will ultimately and finally deal with sin, the sin you've committed today. But it, it was only one, there was only one author in the Old Testament who told us how the coming Redeemer would save his people from their sins. And that is Isaiah Isaiah told us that the Messiah would rescue people from their sins by suffering and dying in their place. Listen to Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53, familiar verses. Isaiah 53, verse five and, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of the Messiah, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, the Hebrew word translated well-being there is, is the word shalom. The chastening for our peace with God fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to strike him. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. Listen, the Romans didn't crush Jesus. God did. Why? So that, Isaiah says, he might render his soul a guilt offering. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, like an Old Testament guilt offering, to pay the guilt of your sin if you're in Christ or will believe in him. Now notice in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, that the angel tells us the identity of this newborn that's going to rescue us from our sin, from God's wrath. He is Christ the Lord. Now that is a most unusual expression. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Literally, the Greek text says this, who is Christ Lord? Both words are titles that this child rightfully bears. And both of these titles have their roots in the Old Testament. Let's look at them for a moment. First of all, Christ. The word Christ refers to the special deliverer that the Old Testament prophesied. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It literally means the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Hamashiach. Ha is the definite article, Mashiach, the anointed one, Hamashiach. When we anglicize it, it becomes Messiah, the Messiah. 
But when you take Hamashiach, the Hebrew word, and you translate it into Greek, the anointed one in Greek is Christos. When you take the word Christos and bring it into English, it becomes Christ. So understand then, Hamashiach, the Messiah, Christos, and Christ all mean the same thing. They all mean the anointed one. What the angel was announcing to those awestruck shepherds that night was that the baby who had been born that day in Bethlehem was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about the coming Messiah. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Tom will have part four for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, join Tom Pennington in South Lake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.